Hi, I'm George Bodarkey, host of WFUV's Cityscape. I'm excited to be teaming up with the Brooklyn Public Library to bring you a special series about four communities that made Brooklyn the vibrant, diverse borough it is today. So from WFUV and the Brooklyn Public Library, this is Building Brooklyn. Did you, you both mentioned how you've ended up talking so much about these years afterward. When you were there, did it feel like a big deal? Did it feel like an historic thing? Well, we didn't feel like heroes at all. We just felt it was the thing did to do. Did it feel like a big deal, did she say, yeah. working there? Yeah. Sure. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, you know, but we didn't think we were doing anything special. No, not special, but it was a... Uh, it was special, it was so uh, unusual. Yeah, unusual. You have women working at something like this. So let's say you meet a stranger or something, and they say, well, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm a welder at the Navy Yard. Did you watch the reaction? Oh, sure. You well, people miss were it. shocked. Today on Borrowed, we're taking you back to New York City in the 1940s in the midst of World War II. At the start of the war, 200 women were employed at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was then the largest dry docks in the world. Within three years, there were nearly 7,000 women at the yard, making up 10% of the workforce. Then they were gone as rapidly as they appeared. By the war's end in 1946, the Navy Yard workforce returned to almost entirely male. To better paint a picture of that unique moment in time, we've turned to oral histories conducted with several women some 45 years after they worked at the Navy Yard. I used to arrive about 6 a.m. in the morning, maybe a little bit later, and uh, it would be quite dark, and uh, I disappeared into the Sand Street Gate, and that was the end of that. Did it feel strange to be doing work that was typically male? Oh, of course. Uh-huh. It was also romantic and exciting, uh-huh. you know, to wear pants. And... Uh-huh. The physical conditions were very rough, and I must say I wasn't crazy about the cold or the heat. We stood on things that were very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. all day, you know, 10 hours a day. What they would do, men would walk around, especially the bosses, and they'd step on your toe. Nah, they stepped on your toe and you didn't have one of those shoes on track. And you know, uh, nobody ever asked for a hammer. They asked for a f- hammer. You know, that's, uh, did you begin to speak that way? Or did, did yeah, the women begin to speak that way? Yeah, I guess we, you know, it's sort of, uh, well, I guess that was part of the freedom that we kind of, mm-hmm. those of us who like, uh, mm-hmm. who enjoyed that kind of idea of the freedom, I suppose. Yeah. What well, was it a freedom from? Well, freedom from being considered completely feminine and uh, wearing dresses and things like that. And what does it mean to be completely feminine? <laughs> I'm not sure. And that, that, that time? Uh, and that time, um, well, doing the things that women are supposed to do, like working in an office or be a nurse. So. Mm-hmm. That was tape from oral histories collected by the Center for Brooklyn History at Brooklyn Public Library. The voices you just heard were Ida Pollock and Sylvia Everett, Helen Galliardi, Lucille Colkin, and Betty Chase. From their descriptions, you can imagine what it was like to journey in the early hours of the morning to your 8 to 12 hour shift as a welder, a messenger, a typist, or even a seamstress, all in the war effort to build and repair naval ships. You'd arrive by subway, bus, or bicycle, 
to the water's edge, your modest dress whipping against the wind, heels hardly clipping against the pavement before being stopped and searched at the Sand Street entrance, and then onwards to change into your work pants and steel-toe boots. The handful of years captured in these oral histories depict a unique and significant time for women, a brief flicker in the story of women at work. So today on Borrowed, a window into that unique time with help from Jennifer Egan, the acclaimed writer who helped start this collection of oral histories at the library and who relied on the stories you'll hear today to write her novel, Manhattan Beach. This is the second of five episodes in Building Brooklyn, a miniseries brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library. I'm Adra Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. We'll begin the way that workers would have started their days, arriving at the Navy Yard, which was then, and still is today, hard to get to by public transit. Lucille Ford vividly remembers her trips to the Navy Yard. I had never been in Brooklyn before. I got off at High Street, Subway, and I got the bus, and it took me to the Navy Yard. I don't even remember the address of the Navy Yard. I would get on the trolley, and I'd ride to Flushing Avenue. Mm-hmm. I'd take the Flushing Avenue to Sand Street Gate, mm-hmm. Navy Yard. Betty Chase was the only woman tack welder when she started in 1941 or 1942. She remembers having to take the trolley to work alone late at night for the start of her night shift. Within a year, another woman started working at the Navy Yard with her and joined her on her commute. That was much better. My mother was much, she was happy about that. She didn't like the idea, you know, of uh, me standing there flushing air and waiting for, you know, something, you know, to go to. Right, because that was, what time would you be going home from the night shift? Well, I leave at about six, seven o'clock in the morning. Once you arrived at the Navy Yard, there were even more complications to navigate. You are, after all, among the first and only women to work at the yard, so you would probably encounter bathrooms supplied only with urinals. Here's Betty Chase again. Now, being in a two-room had a disadvantage because, after all, this is a place, this is a construction, it's a Navy Yard. Men, you're going to have to go to the bathroom where you're going. Mm-hmm. Set up strictly for men. Urinals, that's all. Right. You know. This should be 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. See, because I come in about 11 o'clock. Right. 11 o'clock at night. Right. And to walk with me, you know, part the way there. Because, you know, urinals have no doors. I guess those of us who worked in the Navy Yard must have had something a little bit different to begin with. I mean, in many cases, uh, probably. I mean, you wouldn't have taken the most feminine girl. That's Lucille Colkin. She worked at the Navy Yard in the Department of Welfare before training to become a welder in 1942. She would have gone there. Mm-hmm. It was too dirty, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it, that would have bothered her. And that didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so long as I could clean up. Because you come from a sort of a somewhat different background to be able to go in there and do it, mm-hmm. you know. Lucille Colkin recorded her oral history in 1989, but her handwritten letters to her husband, Al, who also worked at the Navy Yard as a machinist before his deployment in 1944, were donated to the Center for Brooklyn History after her death in 1997. It was those letters that were a big part of the inspiration for writer Jennifer Egan's novel, Manhattan Beach. 
she came across them while on a library fellowship and fell in love with Lucille's story. Manhattan Beach takes place in 1942 and follows three protagonists. Anna Kerrigan, who worked at the Navy Yard first as a welder and then a diver, a gangster named Dexter Stiles, and Eddie, Anna's father, a small-time racketeer who disappears halfway into the book. So when I began trying to imagine working on a book set during World War II, I found that I felt kind of frozen. This is the author, Jennifer Eakin. We interviewed her a few months ago, and she talked to us about how she started writing Manhattan Beach. And I realized it was because I had no context to draw on. If you think about how much is included in a memory of time and place, it also involves people. It involves a context. It involves sights and smells and details of the physical world, and all of that leads into story. So what the oral histories initially provided was almost like an alternate memory bank. <laughs> a feeling, a sense of a time and a place and details and voices that would normally be my own, but I couldn't use my own because it didn't reach back that far. So that was what they did first. And in a way that was sort of vague, like it just gave me a way to start. It was 2004 when Egan first got the idea for a novel set in the 1940s. She began conducting research. She started talking to women who were alive then and recording their stories. It was very ad hoc, Egan says. But eventually, she linked up with the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation and the Center for Brooklyn History. Over the next four years or so, they collected 49 interviews with people who worked at the Navy Yard during the war. Egan relied on the details from the oral histories you're hearing in this episode to write her novel. And one thing that was so striking was that, you know, there were as many points of view here as there were people who converged there. I mean, it was a really eclectic environment in which people were thrown together with other people of different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities, in many cases for the first time, because this was... New York of, of, of neighborhoods that were often very divided ethnically. I mean, sometimes one half of a block would be Irish and the other half Italian, so all Catholic, but, you know, but not really mingling. So there were these real differences um, still to some degree. And yet at the Navy Yard, people were thrown together. The Navy Yard has a long history of shipbuilding in times of war and in times of peace. In the early 1800s, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was among the first five naval yards built in the newly independent United States. But for the majority of its history, the Navy Yard was predominantly the domain of white men. It wasn't until the Fair Employment Practices Act of 1941 that African Americans were employed at the Navy Yard at all, and only in apprentice or assistant roles, jobs that were lower paid than their white counterparts. What was the racial mix in, of women in, in your shop? Were there, were there many black women there? There were black women. There were a good number. Yeah. I don't know how many, but there were a good number. That's Jennifer Egan speaking to Ida Pollock and Sylvia Hahnemann Everett in 2008. Ida and Sylvia both became welders at the Navy Yard after an intensive six-week training course. And was the feeling among you... What was it like? Was it comfortable? Comfortable. Well, this one woman that I worked near me, I, I, we became very friendly. She was a lovely woman. And we went out and did things together. So I'm saying there, was, there must have been more of that. Mm -hmm. 
In another oral history, Egan interviewed Lucille Ford, who at the time was Lucille Butler, an African-American woman from the Bronx who worked first as a messenger and then as a clerical typist. She recalls commuting with a white woman who also worked at the Navy Yard. So the girl that you went to the Navy Yard with also lived in the Bronx? Yes, in a higher part of the Bronx, and that's why she was a she was going uh, horseback riding all the time. And then I got uh, interested in horseback riding, and I started going with her group. And was that before you worked at the Navy Yard? No, it was wild because oh, wow. I, okay. I saw her every day. She was married already, so she got a, she got a job also. Yes. Cross-cultural exchanges like these might seem trivial today, but as Egan described, for many people at the time, this was a huge shift from the status quo before the war. And when you think about the heightened level of xenophobia and war anxiety, it does seem like quite a feat for women of different racial backgrounds to become friends while working. But it was not always rosy or riveting at the Navy Yard. The increase in workforce highlighted many social inequities. Beyond the extremely long hours to meet production demand or the number of female-friendly bathrooms, there was also a pay disparity between men and women and between whites and non-whites. Factors such as gender, race, education all played a role in how much the new workforce was paid in comparison to their white male counterparts. Women and African Americans were called apprentices and as such could not initially join the union to fight for pay increases. And for the first time in Navy Yard history, the number of minorities and women at work made these disparities visible. Petitioning to join the union became a galvanizing opportunity a different kind of call to arms, or at the very least, a call to strike and picket for some of the women at the Navy Yard. Lucille Colkin was one such woman who was interested in union activities. Colkin's letters were the ones that first enchanted Jennifer Egan, and she recounted one particular story from those letters about Lucille's insistence on equity at work. She talks about an African-American woman who is planning to quit because she feels so persecuted. I mean, she's a woman and a woman of color, and she just feels like she can't, she's practically hopeless. And Lucy's very upset reporting this to Elle and saying that she and some of the other women really tried to talk to her. I think this woman's name was Minnie. And and then in a later letter, she reports that Minnie decided to stay, and Lucy was really happy about that. So she was focused on issues of equity and a, a big issue of equity was that women were paid so much less than men at the Navy Yard and, in fact, were also had lower rankings. They, they were called helpers at the beginning. And I learned this from the, from the oral history interviews, and especially um, Ida and Sylvia, who were Lucy's friends, were very up in arms about this. So. They gave us a fraction of what the men got. Yeah, about half. Yeah, 60-something cents an hour, wasn't it? I thought it was less. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, like 50 cents. It was terrible. So eventually we got the same. Oh, after a big fight. That was Ida Pollock and Sylvia Everett, two of Lucille Culkin's friends who worked at the Navy Yard with her. They said that by the end of their time, their wages had increased to $1.20 an hour, 
double what they were making when they started. It's important to remember that the women who worked in the Navy Yard entered the workforce literally wearing pants for the first time, and in some cases walking in men's shoes because proper welding shoes weren't even made in women's shoe sizes. So camaraderie among these women was crucial despite these hierarchies. What is it? What are the words? Oh, you can't. It's nothing. It's one sentence. Okay. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm but even unionizing you. couldn't keep the women of the Navy Yard in the workforce once the war ended. According to Sylvia and Ida in their 2008 interview, there was always the knowledge that women wouldn't be working forever. Until the day I die. I don't think there was any question about it. The women so. went out plunk like that. Yeah. <laughs> Did you feel this was temporary all the time that you worked there? Yeah. Just for the war. Oh. So in your mind, this was not a plan no. for a career? No, we were, we were helping the war, really. Yeah. We but one time when I lived up in Troy for a while, there was an ad in the newspaper for a welder. And just for the hell of it, I called. <laughs> and there was dead silence on the other end. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't, they weren't interested? No, they weren't interested. the war, the community of women from different backgrounds that had sprung to life at the Navy Yard disappeared. As men returned from the war, women, for the most part, returned home. But women weren't the only demographic to slowly disappear from the cultural, economic, and work fabric of the Navy Yard in the early 20th century. And this gets us to our next episode in the series. Before World War II, in the neighborhood just outside the dry docks of the Navy Yard, there was a small but vibrant Japanese community. It had the first Japanese YMCA east of the Mississippi. This community began with the immigration of Japanese men in the late 1800s and early 1900s, mainly shipyard workers, domestic servants, and cooks. One Japanese man ran a popular restaurant that served workers at the shipyard until the 1930s. You can almost imagine Lucy and Al dropping in at the Navy Yard restaurant after a 10-hour shift at the yard. Yeah, and in their archives, actually, the NYPL has that menu from the restaurant. We'll link to it on our show notes page. But with declining Japanese immigration because of racist American policies, including the 1924 Immigration Act, which banned immigrants from Asia and restricted immigration from almost every country outside of Western Europe, the Brooklyn Japanese community began to leave too. We're mentioning this early Japanese American community in Brooklyn because it's important to recognize early settlements of Asian and Asian American immigrants and migrants They've been here, building community, as long as many other ethnic groups. And the histories of their communities are often lost in the stories of who built this borough. And next week, we're going to talk about the birth of another Asian community in Brooklyn, Sunset Park's historic Chinatown. I grew up in the neighborhood. Um, my family moved to Sunset Park in 1974. The neighborhood at that time were, was still largely Scandinavian, Irish, Italian, and uh, and I don't think that those neighbors are particularly happy to see Chinese people moving in. And that's next time on Building Brooklyn. Building Brooklyn is a mini-series from Brooklyn Public Library's Borrowed Podcast. 
It's produced by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Meryl Friedman, and Robin Lester-Kenton. This episode was written by me, Adwa Dusay. Our beta listener on this episode was Lucretia Neal. Our music composer is Billy Libby. You also heard music from Blue Dot Sessions. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me and Krista Corbett-Kavoris. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website. Oral histories on this episode came from our Center for Brooklyn History's Brooklyn Navy Yard Oral History Collection, with a special thanks to Amy Lau for her tireless cataloging that made these oral histories accessible, and to Sarah Quick for helping us pull the tape. Special thanks also to Jennifer Egan, herself Brooklynite, without whom we wouldn't have many of the oral histories in the collection. And we'll leave you with a call to action from the author herself. Oral histories are just so valuable and amazing. And I now feel that we should all be conducting them, you know, informally whenever we can, because they're just, you know, when when the buzzer sounds and the person isn't here anymore, that opportunity is gone. And there's something so magical about hearing people in their own voices tell these stories. The number one piece of advice I would give is just be quiet. Hi everyone, a bit of a bonus here. Since we are the library, we wanted to round out the episode with books. To help us do that, we're joined by BPL staff members Emily Heath and Nuris Pimentel. Welcome to Borrowed. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. So you both are part of BPL's Literary Prize Committee this year. And just a bit of background on what Lit Prize is... Each year, Brooklyn Public Library, in collaboration with the Brooklyn Eagles, honors outstanding works of nonfiction, fiction, and poetry with a prize given in the fall. The titles are selected by librarians and library staff, and the prize recognizes writing that captures the spirit of Brooklyn. Did I get that right? Yeah. I think so. so how do you choose books for the long list? We work for Brooklyn Public Library, so we have amazing librarians that just read amazing materials all throughout the year. And we all had a submission form that we pretty much submitted titles that we believed fit all the criteria. And then eventually we whittle all that down and then we have big old long list. <laughs> so Norris, you mentioned criteria. What are the criteria books have to meet to be nominated for the Lit Prize? So this year, they wanted a Brooklyn connection. Even if the author was from Brooklyn or the story or the characters traveled there one time, but it had to be something that resonated with Brooklyn readers in some way. It had to touch us in some way. Um, About the nonfiction committee, we also looked at books that had like a strong adherence to what we thought of as kind of like Brooklyn community values, like something that was culturally significant Uh, We're also looking for diverse voices. So we're not looking necessarily for the things that are going to be all the the other awards lists. We're looking for maybe voices to elevate that um, maybe aren't featured as as prominently on the end of the year lists by all the big prize committees. How many books did each of you read for the prize? I think I've ended up reading about eight books in total. Everyone was supposed to read at least two books and hopefully three off of that list of 25. After that, we were definitely asked to read 
three books off of the list of 10 and then um, getting down to the short list, we're hoping to read all of the books that are on the short list. I ended up reading all the books. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I did. I did. There were the recommendations that everyone had and just the subject. And I just, you know, librarians really know how to pick amazing books. And I was blown away. And to sit in these discussions, I also wanted to have a voice and I wanted to give my opinion. And the only way to do that, right, it was to read these books. And the worst thing that happened is that you read an amazing book that five people or six people recommended, and maybe the rest didn't like, but at least I was a part of the discussion. So listeners can read the full list of literary prize nominees this year and from years past on our website, but you both have a few favorites to share with us from the long list today. Emily, can we start with you? Sure. I'm going to talk about a couple of titles. The first one um, that I loved is New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time by Craig Taylor, who is a Canadian journalist. He is not a native New Yorker, but he came to New York and kind of embedded himself, lived in New York for several years and interviewed hundreds of New Yorkers on different aspects of their life in the city. Housing in New York, how hard it is to find a job, the wealth inequity, um, the racism that people have encountered, uh, problems with immigration. What he did was excerpt about 75 of the uh, people that he interviewed in their own words, and he organized it by topic. So there's a great section on the pandemic that includes the stories of an ICU nurse and um, a survivor of COVID-19 who had a very close call and was hospitalized. So he really gets a good cross-section of people um, of all races, all backgrounds, all levels of wealth, and really just does an amazing job bringing to life the magic of all these lived experiences kind of crammed together in a small space. Um, I just, I love books that make me feel like I'm doing something inspiring just by virtue of where I live. The second book that I wanted to talk about is How We Show Up, Reclaiming Family, Friendship, and Community. This is by Mia Birdsong, who is an activist based in Oakland. Um, so it's not a book about Brooklyn, but it's a book that really reflects the values of Brooklyn because she's talking about community and family and redefining our um, concept of the American dream. And maybe we need to move our energies away from, from aspiring to having a traditional nuclear family unit with two parents and 2.5 kids and a picket fence, and instead shift toward developing stronger relationships with our friends and neighbors and communities, not only to lead to more personal happiness, but to help combat the problems of poverty and racism, mental illness, abuses of power by the police and the government. Um, it really inspired me to try to make more connections of this kind. Um, and look in places that maybe I haven't looked for them before. And I feel like it really incorporated to me the spirit of Brooklyn's values. Thank you, Emily. Narice, how about you? First up is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Amazing book. It is about um, trans women and their relationship. And unfortunately, due to um, some violence and you know, just a love story, just tragic love. One of the partners decides to detransition, and their partner that they are now with, they get pregnant. And it's so many emotions. The way that the authors also are trans women, and it comes from experience, it's raw, the writing is exciting, it's tight. And it also sheds light on this 
community and the things that they really, really go through physically, mentally, emotionally, trying to fit into this world and fit into their own community and have these relationships with each other, still trying to find out who they are. And it's a journey. And I have actually never experienced, read, or heard of detransitioning back. And that was amazing to read and so raw that sometimes this lifestyle, it's too hard. They can't take it, even though deep down inside, that is who they believe that they are. They can't live outright because society won't let them. And sometimes you have to find a way to survive. Liberty is the second book that I read that I fell in love with it. So Liberty by Caitlin Greenidge takes place in Reconstruction era Brooklyn. It's about a young girl named Liberty and her mom is the doctor in that area of Brooklyn. And her mom also is part of like the underground railroad because they are able to slip slaves out from down south and bring them up here and they have to give them something to make it seem like they died and they're in a casket. So her mom is also an herbologist and she's able to bring them back when they arrive. And her daughter witnesses all of these things. And her mom really is raising her to be a doctor. Her mom wants to open up a doctor's office. Her daughter is going to be her right, you know, her right hand. And we're going to but Liberty does not want to be a doctor. And eventually Liberty falls in love with an apprentice of her mother who came to study under her, a Haitian doctor. And his goal is to go back to his country and practice medicine. And Liberty goes with him. That is Liberty. It's, it's based on her story and it's beautiful. And it does take place in Brooklyn, an amazing era. And then it goes to Haiti which you also learn so much about the land and the people and the culture. And it was an amazing read. Listeners can check out these titles and more from the 2021 Lit Prize Longlist on our website. That's it for this episode. See you next week.